0: Well, Cedar Street Baptist Church, I love you, and I hope you've had a great week. It's so great to be in the Lord's house here today, and we are continuing our journey into the book of Mark. If you were not here last week, we began uh, in verse 1, chapter 1, and we're going to walk all the way through this, and the title of our sermon series is called Jesus Is, okay? Jesus Is, and last week we talked about uh, we had proof of a promise-keeping God, as we talked about the prophecy fulfilled uh, through the John the Baptist. And this week, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13. But let me draw your attention to the... Uh what I call the Sermon Series Study Guide that is put inside your bulletin. This is just something helpful that you can put inside your Bible as we walk through the book of Mark together. This is something that I've compiled from about five different handbooks, three different study Bibles, and every other commentary that I could get my hands on. So this is kind of a snapshot, the best of the best, when it comes to understanding the book of Mark. And I'm not going to sit here and read it. When you have your own time and and devotion, you can read it, certainly. But I do want to draw your attention to one thing. Because this is going to help us as we walk through Mark together. If you look at the back on part three, it says additional notes and quotes. I listed a helpful tip for reading the gospel of Mark. Okay? When you look at Mark, it's like an album of photos or an action-packed documentary of the final years of Christ's life. Don't focus on the chronological order of events as we read them. Because that's not what Mark's focus is. We said last week Mark is writing to the church, or excuse me, to non-believers in Rome, the Roman Empire, and he's going action-packed from scene to scene to scene, and he's not focusing on chronology as much as he's focusing on themes. So I don't want us to get bogged down in this, but I want us to allow ourselves to relive the action and immediacy of each scene and ask ourselves this question after every passage. What does this tell me about who Jesus is And how does this magnify my desire to worship him? Let me ask that again. What does this passage, every week when we're reading scripture, what does this tell me about who Jesus is and how does this magnify my desire to worship him? So think about that question as we read each passage week by week and we walk through the book of Mark. Now, having said that, as I often like to do, I want to pose a question that will provoke your heart and mind as we Begin our message here today. And the question I have for you today is this Have you ever tried to take a shortcut to what is required in order to pursue what is easy? Have you ever tried to take a shortcut to what is required in order to pursue what is easy? We live in a fallen world of sin, and our daily lives are a constant battle of deciding between what is required versus what is easy. There's an undeniable truth about our universe, and it's this. If we commit up front to facing short-term pain in order to do what is required, we can enjoy long-term pleasure. But if we pursue short-term pleasure in order to have what is easy, we will experience long-term pain. Think about how this works in your everyday life, okay? Think about your finances, your diet, your time management, your relationships, even your devotion to God. It requires immediate short-term pain for lasting long-term pleasure. Whether it's a mortgage we can't afford, a credit card bill we can't pay, a car loan we can't keep up with, a body we can't keep healthy, a project we can never finish on time, or a relationship where we can't avoid conflict, we can almost always point to choices where we went after short-term pleasure and now we're facing the long-term consequences of pain. But praise God, we worship a Savior who never ever took the easy way out. Jesus Christ is God who took on human flesh to live the life we should have lived in order to earn our righteous rewards, to die the death that we deserved in order to take on our punishment, and to rise from the dead three days later to offer us eternal life. To accomplish this, he entered into the human experience, and he didn't skip a single step. From his miraculous birth until his sacrificial death and supernatural resurrection, Jesus entered into our world and became like one of us in every way, yet without sin. Time after time, he was given the opportunity to take the easy way out, but he remained obedient to fulfilling each and every requirement of his Father's will. In other words, he was a Savior who took no shortcuts. So, having said that, grab your Bibles and meet me in Mark chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13, and we'll find out more about our Savior who takes no shortcuts. So if you could stand out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy and inerrant and infallible word and let's read god's word together again we are in mark we are in chapter 1 and verses 9 through 13 here the word of the lord starting in verse 9 in those days jesus came from nazareth of galilee and was baptized by john in the jordan and when he came up out of the water immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Let us pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we do thank you and praise you for this day that you have made Father, we acknowledge today as sinners coming into your house that we need a Savior. And we acknowledge we have sinned against you by taking shortcuts in life, by not always following your will, by not always doing what is required and sometimes doing what is easy. But Father, allow us to read your word this morning and praise your holy name and properly worship your Son in knowing that we have a Savior who took no shortcuts. So Father, I pray in the moments that we have together here, I pray that you'd open up our hearts, that you'd open up our minds, and enable us to see that we have a Savior who was like us in every way, yet without sin. Let that lead us into salvation and lead us into worship today. Father, we love you, we thank you, and praise you, and offer these words in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. So, again, last week we started in Mark 1 and we looked at verses 1 through 8. And in the first 8 verses, Okay, as we walk through, we saw the ministry of John the Baptist. Well, Mark is immediately jumping from that ministry to show that the Son of Man was coming to know to now show that He is here. It is as if uh, Mark is saying the prophet's ministry fulfilled prophecy and proves that the Son of God is now here. So let me tell you more about who the Son of God is. So today I want to take a closer look at at least the first three requirements of Christ's ministry to see just how we have a Savior. Who took no shortcuts. So, first, let's talk about the preparation of Christ's ministry. Okay, the preparation of Christ's ministry. Look at the first part of verse number nine. I think when we read verses like this, we kind of just look at them as throwaway verses, but stop halfway through the verse. It says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Stop right there. Now, most of us have have heard the stories, we know about the upbringing of Jesus, and so we read that and we just keep moving on to the next part of the passage. But stop and marinate on this understanding that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. That doesn't mean much to us, but to the people who are reading this book, that is monumental. And the reason why is this. The nation of Israel was expecting to have a Messiah come straight from heaven to a place where they didn't know where he'd be from and yet he would be a mighty warrior who would come and slay the Romans and restore Israel to prominence. That's what they were expecting. But instead, God humbles himself to become a human being and he lives in this little tiny podunk town called Nazareth, a town so small it wouldn't show up on Google Maps. Okay? This is, this is as small as small gets. It's not showing up on the GPS. And Jesus humbles himself in such a way that he skips no steps in entering into humanity and becoming like one of us and entering into our world to know what it is to be human in every way. He was from Nazareth. In fact, the Bible tells us why people didn't think much of Nazareth. In fact, in John chapter 1, verses 45 through 46, Uh, Some of the disciples are talking. In verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, quote, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Then in verse 46, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. So they didn't think much of this little podunk town. They didn't think much about Nazareth. But not only Nazareth, think about this for a moment. I think I mentioned this a couple Wednesday nights ago when we were doing Bible study. Think about the fact that for one moment in history, in time and space, God humbled himself in such a way that he became a single human cell in the womb of Mary. He didn't skip that step. He was human. And he went through things that we go through as human beings. Luke chapter 2, verses 52, talks about Jesus growing up the way that we grow up. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He had to have Joseph teach him how to cut wood from the very trees he created. And he had to learn and grow in knowledge and wisdom of the holy scriptures that were written by him and were about him. And he did it in becoming human just like us. His entire life was a picture of sacrificial preparation for this ministry that Mark is beginning to tell us about. I I saw a great quote this week. Uh, Joel and I, on Thursday mornings, we've been walking through one of the best books that was printed in the 20th century. It's called Basic Christianity by John Stott. And uh, we were reading a quote last week that really grabbed me. Here's what John Stott says about the sacrificial preparation of Christ. He says, Never has anyone given up so much. He renounced the joys of heaven for the sorrows of earth. He was born of a lowly Hebrew woman in a dirty stable in the insignificant village of Bethlehem. He became a refugee baby in Egypt. He was brought up in the obscure hamlet of Nazareth and toiled at a carpenter's bench to support his mother and the other children. Eventually, he became a traveling preacher with few possessions, small comforts, and no home. He gave up heaven to enter into our fallen earth and became one of us in every way, yet without sin. Now let me share an illustration with you. Somebody shared this with me a couple years ago, and it has always stuck with me. I had a missionary come to one of my classes at the seminary, and he talked about sometimes the difficulty of doing short-term missions as Americans. We go out to third-world countries, and we share the gospel, and we meet these physical needs, and we meet these spiritual needs, but we're only there for a few weeks, and we don't really get to know them. And the missionary said this, he said, the reason why Americans often struggle to be effective in short-term missions is because the third world is like coconuts and we're like peaches. I kind of looked at him and I said, what do you mean they're like coconuts and we're like peaches? He said, well, in third world countries where family is everything, he said, they're like coconuts. They have a hard outer shell and they don't let anybody in. They do not let you in because they know you're not going to be there and you're not invested in becoming one of them and you don't know what they've been through. But if you wait out long enough and you spend enough time with them, you get through that hard shell and there's nothing but warm liquid inside and you become one of them. Now, as Americans, we're completely opposite, but listen very closely. We're like peaches, all right? We let everybody in on the surface. But once they get close enough to us, we're like the core pit of a peach. We don't let them get through that. I mean, how many people have you met or known in this community as you've been raised up? And they say, hey, how's your mom and daddy doing? Bless their heart. And they're asking you how family is. And and on the surface, they care. They'll invite you to the house for dinner. But what do you really know about their lives? What do you really know? I suppose this is a challenge to all of us to say, whether we approach people as coconuts or like peaches, are we willing to enter into their world and spend enough time with them to know them, to minister to them, to really pray for them? When I said that, that part of uh, the calling for me as a shepherd was to know, lead, feed, and protect the sheep, number one, there is no. I can't shepherd you if I don't know you. And it is my heart to know you beyond a surface level. I want to get beyond the, the makeup and the exterior of what pastoral ministry is, and, and I want to get to know who you are, and I want you to know who I am. I'm getting ready to have a baby girl here in a few weeks, and I don't have a clue how to be a father. I need this village to raise up that child. We need to get, we need to get through the coconut shell and through the peach into the core. Jesus was not afraid to do that. Jesus spent the time necessary, 30 years in Nazareth, Think about this. At seminary, they say we prepared three years for a 30-year ministry, but Jesus prepared 30 years for a three-year ministry. Sometimes I think we have things backwards. But he was always prepared to enter into our world as one of us. That's the preparation of Christ's ministry. Let's talk now, number two, about the inauguration of Christ's ministry. Look at the second part of verse 9 through verse 11. It says that he was baptized by John in the Jordan, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Well, in this picture of baptism, which is the inauguration of Christ's ministry, Mark is doing something really intentional that if we don't look closely, we might miss. This picture right here, where the whole Trinity is present, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, is a mirror of what took place at the very beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1. In fact, Genesis 1, verses 2 through 3 say this, And now the earth was form, formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. In this passage, the Father decided to bring form and light to this world through His Son, the Word. And the Spirit was present, hovering over the waters. Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, that's at creation. Now, creation has fallen because of sin. But when Jesus comes, He's coming to take what is old and make it new. Take what is broken and fix it. He's taking creation and He's making recreation. And He's coming in as a man... And this inauguration of ministry, again, you see the Father, and you see the Son, and you see the Spirit. Tim Keller puts it perfectly when he says this, there are three parties active in the creation of the world, God, God's Spirit, and God's Word, through which He creates. The same three parties are present at Jesus' baptism, the Father who is the voice, the Son who is the Word being baptized, and the Spirit fluttering like a dove over the waters. Jesus is making all things new. He is more than a man. He's also God. But we see both his humanity and his deity at the same time in this passage. Now, here's the next question that you might want to ask yourself. Why in the world did Jesus have to be baptized? I mean, we read last week that it was a baptism for repentance of sins. But one of the cornerstones of our faith is that Jesus was perfect. Why would Jesus have to be baptized if he was perfect? Well, I've heard many commentators say this Jesus no more needed to be baptized than he needed to hang on a cross. He didn't need it. We do. And he needed to do it to fulfill all righteousness, which means in every way that Adam failed, Jesus had to succeed. John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, How can I? I, I should come to you for baptism, and yet you come to me. And Jesus says, We must fulfill all righteousness righteousness. It had to happen. Jesus had to enter into that moment. But also, I want to draw to your attention this. We knew, and Jesus knew, that there would be a battle with Satan during his earthly ministry. And this baptism is almost like the trumpet sound beginning the battle beginning the battle. One commentator says this. He says, When Jesus was baptized, along with all the repenting people who wanted to be on God's side, it was as though the commander-in-chief had come to the front lines, fastened his bayonet, strapped on his helmet, and jumped into the trench along with the rest of us. And when he did that, his Father in heaven, who had sent him for this very combat, signified with the appearance of a dove that the Holy Spirit would be with him in the battles to come. Christ was getting ready for a battle, and the baptism inaugurates this battle, and they're beginning this three-year ministry where Jesus is going to change the world forever. So now we know, one, the preparation of Christ's ministry, where he took no shortcuts. Number two, we know the inauguration of Christ's ministry, where he took no shortcuts. But number three, let's look at the temptation of Christ's ministry where he took no shortcuts. Look at verses 12 through 13. It says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Again, I think when we read these things, we skip over some important words. Look at the very beginning. It says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Right there, we see that Jesus Christ is immediately submissive to the Spirit. He is submissive to the will of God. When God convicts him to do something, he does it, and he does it well. Cedar Street, let me pose this question to you. Okay, we said in the very beginning of the message that often we get in trouble when we do what is easy instead of what is required. What would our lives look like if for even one week, maybe even one day, when we had a conviction of the Holy Spirit on something that we were supposed to do, we didn't stop. But immediately, which is a word Mark loves to use, we did the the Lord's will, regardless of what the Lord's will was. Jesus knew he was entering into painful temptation, but he immediately, by the guidance of the Spirit, went into the wilderness to accomplish God's will. What about your life? I have found in my life when God wants to tell me something, I'm pretty ignorant, and he's got to repeat himself time after time after time. And if I'm more receptive to the Spirit and immediately I do what I know God has called me to do, it may bring short-term pain and sacrifice, but it does bring long-term pleasure in the end. What what if? What if our lives were, were so submitted like Jesus Christ that we could say what Jesus says? I only do what the Father tells me to do. What would our lives look like? So he's submissive to the Spirit. He enters into the wilderness. Now, why is Jesus being tempted? Well, again, just like baptism, he's got to do everything that Adam did yet without sin. He's the second Adam. In fact, in... uh Romans chapter 5, Paul continues to talk over and over and over again about Adam is the first man, and he brought sin into the world, so Jesus has to be the second Adam who brings righteousness into the world. Because we identify with Adam in our sins, but when we're born again we put our faith in Jesus, we identify with Jesus as the righteous man, the second Adam. Romans 5, verses 18 through 19 say this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So the condemnation is Adam, the righteousness is Christ. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, that's us, so by one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous, that's Christians who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. He had to do everything that Adam did But do it the way God intended for it to be done. So, what was he tempted with? Well, Mark doesn't tell us, but praise God, we got three other gospels that do. In fact, I'll look just for a second here at Matthew chapter 4. We know first that uh, Jesus fasted and he was tempted to eat. He fasted 40 days to grow closer to the Father, and when he was hungry, Satan challenged him to turn the stones into bread and break the Father's will, but Jesus refused. In Mark 4, or Matthew 4, 4, he says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, complete side note. has nothing to do with the message. Every time I think of that verse, I think of a guy, a friend of mine back in Philadelphia, that used to say, he used to, say to me all the time, Bobo, I don't know if uh, Jesus said, you know, man could not live by bread alone, but I don't think he's ever been to Philadelphia before. Have you ever had the bread around here? The hoagies and the cheesesteaks and the Amoroso rolls and the bakeries? And I I used to always say to him, if I didn't know the Bible, you'd be right. But it always reminds me of the temptation. Anytime you talk about man does not live by bread alone, Jesus could easily have partaken of the bread, but he refused. And then you look also, he stands at the top of the temple, and Satan challenges him to throw himself off the temple and let the angels catch him. And Jesus says in Matthew 4, 7, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then finally, as he's standing and viewing all the kingdoms of the world, Satan challenges him and says, Jesus, bow down and worship me, and I will give you all of these kingdoms. And Jesus says in Matthew 4.10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In all the ways Adam failed in his season of temptation and his desire to be like God instead of just to obey God, Christ succeeded by setting aside his deity and simply remaining faithful to the Father's will for his mission on this earth. Through his preparation, inauguration, and temptation, Jesus followed every step of the Father's will and fulfilled every requirement necessary. Jesus was raised in Nazareth not because he had no other home, because it was the only home humble enough for him to be able to reach those who had no home at all. Jesus was baptized not because he was sinful, but because he wanted to identify with human beings who are. Jesus was tempted not because God wanted to know his heart, but because God wanted his son to earn the righteousness required to change our heart. Jesus took no shortcuts to earn our salvation. So what's our response? The gospel, we talk about it every week in Awana, I repeat it over and over and over again because I want the children to understand it's the most important message that you will ever know. The gospel is the good news that Jesus did for us what we could never have done for ourselves. All right, The gospel has the fact that God is loving and holy, man was created in God's image to be loving and holy, sin tainted that love and that holiness, Jesus comes to restore all things by living fully in love and in holiness and earning our righteousness. But most importantly, that message commands a response. Every single human being, past, present, future, will stand at the day of judgment and you will have to face a holy God and you will have to take an account for the decision that you have made. You have to respond in one way or the other. There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus Christ. You either for Him or against Him. And so, as we look at a Savior who has taken no shortcuts to die for us, what are we doing to live for Him? If you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, let me assure you the Scriptures are well supported, that you have a God who went to the farthest length that He could possibly go to to lovingly save you. But if you are a Christian, maybe today is a day where God is convicting your heart that you haven't been submissive to the Spirit, that you haven't taken the long route to do what God has called you to do. You've avoided some pain to experience short-term pleasure, and now you're experiencing the long-term pain of disobedience. Maybe today is a day to get right with God. I will pray here in a minute, and we'll enter into a time of invitation where the altar is open. And I pray that you would respond as God would lead your heart as as it says in the scriptures, immediately God spoke to the heart of Jesus and immediately he did what the Father told him to do. When you know what God's called you to do, do it. And if you haven't, repent and ask for him to restore you this very day. Having said that, let us pray together. Father, we love you and I cannot imagine, Father, what your Son had to go through. Even in the 30 years in Nazareth where we don't have a lot of testimony in the Scriptures of what took place. Being under the caretaking of a carpenter, a blue-collar trade in a small town. Father, we acknowledge that your Son did everything necessary, not just to save us, but to enter into our world. To be like one of us in every way, yet without sin. Father, I pray if anyone in this room is having issues and trouble, trusting that there is a good and loving God, let the Word speak to them today, Father. Work in their heart and mind that they would trust God and give their lives to Him. And for those who are born-again Christians, Father, if there is a season where they have not trusted, a season where they have taken shortcuts, that when they see what Christ has done in taking the long way around, that they repent and follow Him. All these things, Father, we love and thank you and ask in Jesus' name, amen.